Welcome back to the Boss Studies podcast hosted by myself, Swalia, and my co-host, Manasi. Today, our special guest is Phnom Bagley from Nonfiction. If you could introduce yourself, that would be great. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm very excited for this. So my name is Phnom Bagley. I'm based in San Francisco. Uh, I've been here for about 10 years originally from France. And what I do is that I run a design firm. Um, And the type of design that we do has to do with thinking about how best to design the future. So it serves humans, it serves the environment, and it serves uh, the future of innovation. And so the type of work that we do, you know, ranges from designing brain stimulators for humans. So we turn them into superhumans to designing educational systems for countries or redefining industries. Um, so they are completely devoid of fossil fuel and, um, and, and use renewable energy. So uh, pretty broad uh, background. My background is also in aerospace. So I'm what's called a space architect. So I get to design space stations, space habitats um, and living environments for astronauts in extreme environments. So um, what's what's pretty interesting about all that work is that it seems like it's going all directions, but what's what's, uh, special about working with us is that we um, connect every industry to the next one. And that's where a lot of magic and innovation happens. Yes, I love that. Um, I always found like your background very interesting. I know we've had um, some previous conversations, especially um, how your work particularly merges um, industrial engineering and design. And I think it's really cool to see the product um, of this interdisciplinary nature of your work. And something else I also wanted to ask about nonfiction specifically, I know we've touched on this in a, a little bit before, um, is how nonfiction challenges the status quo of current design firms and what you guys do specifically. And I know that also relates back to why you even chose to found nonfiction instead of working at a different organization or institution. Yeah, I mean, like like most motivations in life, it all comes from frustration, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but also uh, it also comes from understanding who the masters are, right? There's been a lot of pretty incredible things that have happened in the world and in the world of design over the last, you know, let's say 50, 60 years or so. And so really learning from what transformations have happened, why they have happened and how they have influenced the way we live our lives uh, all the uh, you know everywhere is 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 quite important. Now, the focus of how we should design and why we should design new things has shifted a little bit, right? It used to be more about comfort or how to make things more efficient and you know more cost effective and things like that. I think that was true uh, and is still true in many ways, but there's a new um, there's a new layer of thinking that has to happen, which is the sustainability of it all. Like, do we continue to do the same things the same way, polluting ecosystems and uh, developing human behaviors that are not healthy, or do we change through good design, right? Good design of objects, good designs of environments, good designs of human behaviors, All of these things are very connected and we as designers and futurists have the power to actually control that in a way that is a little bit more responsible. Yeah, I'm so excited to break that down a little bit more. And 
I think this leads into just another question I had. And so I know nonfiction has produced a masterclass of sorts on YouTube um, called the Future Series, where you guys talk about very different concepts in design and uh, futuristic thinking and things like conceptual design and things like evolution versus revolution and all these really, really cool topics that are very relevant in design. But I know that one aspect of something that you were talking about on that series is that designers have a very important role to play in changing global consciousness. And so I think that's sort of what you touched on in terms of creating the future of what's already been done or what's already being done to be reflective of the changing needs of people. And so I think one question I had breaking that down a little bit more is how does design change patterns and habits both at an individual level, but also at a systemic level? So design is uh, our interaction with the world, right? We as humans are biological you know, beings and we interact with objects, the clothes that we have on our, on our bodies, the houses we live in, the technologies that we have at work um, on ourselves or, or around us. We communicate with other people using technology and using uh, products. Um, and, and so once you understand how, how these uh, bridges between humans and, and other entities work, uh, you can actually control them in some ways. And, um, and really breaking down all the aspects of designs that can be fiddled with um, is, is, is quite uh, exciting and important, right? We can make a product feel right just by using the right color, the right setting, the right proportion, um, the right way it touches our bodies. Um, or we can do the opposite. We can do something that's very aggressive and very um, confrontational by making it you know, um, very foreign to us, um, by making it um, you know, unnatural in a lot of ways. So, um, so that's, that's, that's one of the things that we do. Um, also really thinking about how products influence our behaviors. Um, you know, do we want people to live the same way and to find stability in the way they live their lives? Or are we trying to uh, transform something, transform their outlook on life, transform the why behind their decisions and to have people influence other people? All of that can be done uh, you know, through design. And, uh, but design only really happens when it's fully um, manifested, right? Everybody has ideas about design. This should be red, this should be black, this should be round, this should be square. Um, all of these are design decisions. But not everybody knows how to take these ideas and then turn them into something that is attainable by everyone, right? Nobody's gonna buy a $5,000 shirt just because they feel like it. Like very few people can, can, can afford that. And there has to be a very specific reason why it costs that much. So how do you make it attainable for people? How do you make it attractive to people? And how do you sell a story that actually resonates with people's desires in life at that moment? Um, so really thinking of trends, really thinking of um, the psychology behind uh, human behaviors like consumption, um, understanding uh, how people think about the things they surround themselves with and what it means to them and what they're gonna do 
with it once once they're done using it, right? The idea of throwing in the blue bin for recycling versus upcycling versus um, you know using secondhand versus um, you know regenerative design uh, where you bring it back to nature without polluting ecosystems. You know these are like different ways of integrating um, um, good or bad behaviors into into the consumer. Um, and so the way we do that is that we don't design by ourselves, right? Like designers by themselves. When I say designers, I, I mean specifically industrial designers, which are designers of, of mass manufactured products. You know, graphic designers and UX designers have like different um, impacts in this world. But the ones that really create physical objects like myself, right? We have a responsibility that is, um, is, is, is huge, right? was it like two or three years ago, um, we all learned that uh, man-made um, things from architecture all the way to objects, all the way to trash, outweighs biomass on planet Earth. That's insane, right? Um, <laughs> um, so what, what does that mean in, in the future of what we do, right? And so now we live in a world that's very interesting because we have integrated a lot of digital um, products in our lives. Uh, we've also optimized a lot of the things that used to be separate objects. For example, your phone that you have in your pocket today, it does a lot of things, right? It can be, you can call people, you can text people, you can calculate your next um, you know, bill, you can, you can, you can do a lot of things. We used to have different objects for each of these functions. And these objects used to be connected to a certain space, whether it's your workspace, your home space, or something that was portable. And so miniaturizing all of that and making them available in one form factor and ending up with something as small as a, a smartphone, for example, to, 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 to do all of these things in our lives has, has increased our our, our, our level of efficiency and proactivity. So, um, so these are great things, but we, we also have to outweigh the negatives. You know, what happens to all that trash? What happens to all of these minerals and, and uh, you know, metals and, and, you know, precious materials that are in there that cannot be separated properly with the technology we have access to today. And then, uh, and then, and then, you know, do we wait for a future technology to do that for us? Or do we fix the problem before it becomes a problem we cannot fix anymore, right? Climate change is one of those things, you know? You, you, you know perhaps in the future, we'll find a, a solution to all of this, but let's not wait until that happens because a lot of us are gonna die on, along the way. Yeah, I like how you ended with a very proactive approach. But something else I was curious about, I'm sure you've heard of the term a circular economy, um, creating products or an economy where we're reusing materials. Um, could you break down regenerative design a little bit more? It's not a term that I've previously heard, but that's the first thing that I thought of. Um, and how you guys incorporate that into how you view sustainability as you're designing and developing products. Yeah, so let's start with circular design. So in theory, circular design is when uh, you recirculate a product or parts of a product in the manufacturing process. So the manufacturing process starts with uh, extracting uh, natural materials, you know, from nature, the metals and, you know, fossil fuels and uh, wood from trees and, you know, all those things that come from nature. You transform them 
um, it turns it's turned into uh, mass manufactured products. They're being consumed. They're being thrown away. And then part of it goes into a landfill. And then circular economy is when you uh, reintegrate that into the loop. You can do that by recycling. You can do that by manufacturing, by reusing, by doing all those things. A lot of R's. Uh, regenerative design is when you uh, go through this whole process of uh, fabricating an object, uh, making it, you know, be used. And when it's time to quote unquote throw it away, you don't have to reintegrate it in um, in in a uh, industrial uh, ecosystem. Uh, you can actually bring it back to nature. You know, just break it down, and then it can. Um, reintegrate natural ecosystems, nourish them, you know, really thinking of waste as food for nature, and then allow nature to, um, um, to, to, to get benefits from it so we can flourish and then offer you more materials to work with. So regenerative design is where we need to be. Unfortunately, a lot of the standards of pro uh, material properties and and, uh, and lifestyle that we have today uh, does not allow us to have a fully regenerative uh, ecosystem around our, our consumption habits. Uh, there are more and more materials that are uh, considered regenerative, um, you know, certain types of uh, bioplastics and, and uh, you know, biomaterials of, of different kinds, things made from mycelium, made from algae. Um, so that's, that's very promising. But one thing you have to be very careful about is one, the authenticity of that um, of regenerative nature, right? Sometimes it sounds like it's regenerative and then you realize that there's like two or three ingredients that are mixed into that that's actually don't really break down. Another thing to be aware of is um, part of the life cycle analysis is uh, energy consumption. Because if it takes, you know, truck loads or you know both loads of um, materials being transported from point A to point B all over the planet in order to, for it for nature to, to take it over that's um, you know a carbon emission problem that um, that is not really helping the whole region of this story. So really thinking of how we consume, how we quote unquote throw away and what kind of energy, what kind of resources, is being used uh, or abused, um, the human rights associated with all of this, uh, where you throw these things away, right? You, you don't like throw anywhere in nature. Nature comes in all forms and, and, uh, and uh, you know, climates and all that. I think there's a, there's a right way of doing it. There's a wrong way of doing it. And as anything that humans do, it needs to be done in a way that um, is measured, right? It's very easy for us to overdo things because we're obsessed with efficiency. We're obsessed with, you know, selling as much as we, we can. Um, but the more we sell, the more products we make, the more products we make, the more we throw them away. So how do we consume less? How do we consume better? And how do we make sure that what we fabricate comes back to nature without harming it? That's actually so interesting. And I think just something I think of when you say all of that is a lot of us don't know what happens to the products we use after we use them. There's like this initial stage of 
a one-time use or a multiple-time use, or maybe we use it for several years, but then we sort of just throw it in a bin. We don't really see what happens after that. So we're not aware of the energy consumption behind how the product came to be, nor what really happened to the product after our stage or our role in its life cycle. And so I guess like, what are your views on making that more of that pipeline accessible to the actual users who are using that product so that we are making more informed decisions? Well, the thing is that it's very complicated and it's not getting simpler, right? Um, so I kind of understand why we're not showing how it works because to be completely honest, sustainable, sustainable um, practices in manufacturing is not sexy. It's a lot of numbers. It's very discouraging. You know, if I tell you that only nine to 19% of everything that's ever been recycled actually has been, and it's probably actually less than that, um, you know, it will not motivate a lot of people into putting the right things in the right bin, right? But we have to start where we are. We have to build habits where people slowly but surely uh, connect themselves to their own behaviors before and after the consumer product. Before you have to ask yourself, do I even need this? Um, you know, uh, do I uh, do, do I buy this because it's instant gratification or because I actually need it? Because we do need certain things in our lives to, you know, to be productive or to bring some joy uh, in our everyday life. I mean, that's that's not something that's going to go away anytime soon. Um, and what happens afterwards? You know, do I feel guilt? Uh, do I feel responsible? Do I feel um, like I have a say in all of that? And it's very easy to think that what I do individually is just a drop in the ocean because it is. And that's why educating uh, entire society, entire generations of people to have an understanding and a curiosity of what, about what happens before and after a product reaches your, your house. Uh, these things are very, very important. Um, and and it, can be, um, it can also accelerate innovation because the thing about consumers is that they have a voice, especially you know, in a world where social media uh, drives a lot of consumption uh, trends and habits. You know, uh, if people want something or are calling out greenwashing coming from a brand or coming from an industry, um, things are fairly likely to, to change in the, right, um, in the right direction. Now, how much it changes and for how long is the hard part. Right, um, because I, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. And they just heard it, you know, some, someone else like talk about it. But, but how does that scale? How does that become a habit? Um, and, and one of my personal favorite things that people really laugh about is that I think there's actually a lot of power in shame. Um, you know, uh, not necessarily like shaming people individually, but creating a culture of shame around uh, past behaviors, right? There's a lot of things in the past, they happen because history, et cetera, et cetera, but, but you wouldn't do that today because you would find that shameful, right? Because our morals have evolved, because policies have evolved, because we're just not exposed to that anymore, thankfully, for the most part. Um, so how do we make people feel ashamed about today's behaviors because they're very shameful in many ways. And how do we give them the option of living differently 
and uh, in a way that's better for everyone. Yeah, I find that really fascinating. How do we create like negative behaviors that are clearly harmful to larger society? How do we socially stigmatize that? I think that's an interesting way to approach it, um, to look at it from like a behavioral, like social aspect. I mean, it like changes like what is socially acceptable, right? If we um, frame these behaviors in a way that becomes socially unacceptable, and then that would lead to different patterns of like larger scale change. So I think that's an interesting approach to uh, think about it from. And something else I was also curious, uh, the nonfiction studio is known for the materials library. So I was curious to hear um, what the story behind creating the materials library was and how you guys view materials um, in the process of product development and why it's, there's so much emphasis on materials themselves. Yeah, so uh, for those who see the video of this recording, uh, right behind me is part of a material library. This is a collaboration with uh, Material Connection, which is a uh, New York-based uh, material library company. What they do is that they um, break down each material that is part of their uh, collection and really um, catalogs everything. So this is a material made out of natural uh, substrates versus a process versus a polymer versus a carbon base or ceramic based uh, material. And uh, the collection that we have here is um, is accessible to anybody who's uh, who who makes an appointment. And we are the largest library on the west coast of the United States. Um, and uh, we have access to materials that can be applicable to so many industries. Um, uh, architecture, automotive, product design, um, um, fashion, packaging, you know, uh, collaterals, you know, anything you like. And um, I mean, the, the range is pretty huge. Like we have like pineapple leather somewhere on this side. We have carbon nanotubes, which is one of the most expensive materials you can find out there. Very strong, uh, you know, uh, structure of carbon atoms uh, together. Um, you know, we have things for, you know, materials for underwear. Like it, it's like, it's like a huge range. And what's nice about this, um, to have something like this in, in the office is that it does inspire us to think a little bit outside the box when it comes to applying the materials that we put into our projects. Because uh, a classic industrial design uh, career, um, you know, 90% of the materials we're going to use are our are list of 15 materials, you know, probably about nine types of plastics and, you know, some metals, some glass, um, and, and, you know, and that's, you know, some uh, polyurethane, you know, rubber-like um, type materials, and, and that's about it. So um, that's mainly driven by accessibility of the material. You can, you can, you can find it very easily, the factories that we work with, you know, already have relationships with um, with um, uh, these material providers, but also cost, right? If you're going to make half a million of something, and the material that you you're buying is very cheap, it can be colored any any hue that you need with any finish that you need very easily. That's going to cost you a lot less than if if you use a very custom or rare material, right? Um, and so, so one thing that's pretty great about this is that because we work, nonfiction specifically work with future applications of, of how we're going to live our lives. We have a little bit more freedom in choosing 
materials that um, are, are have have better properties. So properties are very important here. You know, you really have to be very precise about what is needed under which circumstances. For example, if you um, design a medical products, the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, has certain uh, guidelines on what kind of materials can live where, right? If you have a porous material that's going to absorb all the microbes that you have around, uh, you can be sure that <laughs> that's not going to be uh, anywhere welcome in a, you know, waiting room or a, uh, a an operating room, right? Whereas a material that's like easy to wipe, easy to keep clean, antibacterial, you know, doesn't break down after wiping it for six months, that keeps its color um, and, uh, and, and it's, it's, uh, its newness for a long time, these kind of materials are a bit more, more likely to be, to be selected. So when we think about all the decisions that we make in design, where it's be material and color and finishes and how it's being used, how it's being abused, um, we have to think of all of this from the perspective of the material. And if I come back to your previous question, you know, about regenerative design, uh, regenerative design starts with regenerative materials because that's the, the physical aspect of it, right? The enclosure of the things that we fabricate um, or even the body of the things we fabricate are made out of these materials. So understanding what kind of processes have made this material possible is as important as what happens after you, you, you're done using the product. You know, how does it break down? How do you throw it away even? I mean, this is nothing more complicated than that. Like what bin do I put it in? Or do I give it directly to a, um, a, a very spe specific uh, resource in the city that, that can process it for me? Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty great to have, to have this library here. And, and even like beyond the material, it's just nice to be inspired uh, by different shapes and colors and things you can touch and things you can smell and things you can put in your mouth. You know, it's, it, it goes like all directions. And materials are pretty wonderful at having their own stories, right? A lot of people are very enamored with brands or with, um, um, you know, the, the perceived value of what, what's out there, but you there's a beauty in understanding what a material comes from and, and how it's been processed and why it ended up in the product that you just bought. That was so thorough and there were so many parts of that I want to break down, but I know Swali and I had the opportunity to visit the actual materials library in April, I think, and I think we spent at least like an hour just down there, like looking at everything. I remember the carbon nanotubes and all the different types of materials and it was just so inspiring. And I honestly learned so much just being even in that space because I saw so many different materials and things and designs that I wasn't expecting to see. And I just learned so much about, I remember I saw like leather made out of apple peels or like things like that, that are just so unconventional and novel and just really cool to see and be able to touch and look at. And I think it is just definitely a very inspiring space to be in. I know like after that hour, like I was definitely inspired as well, but I think I want to touch on just the concept of color, which is something that you've talked about a little bit in the future series, but then also touched on a little bit here. And I think it would be really interesting to discuss potentially on this episode. Um, and I want to ask if you could give us maybe a brief overview of the psychology behind color and how uh, you incorporate culture and psychology surrounding different colors and different shades and hues into the design process and how it's an, like an integral part of the design process. 
Absolutely. So um, humans are emotional beings. Um, we react to things, even though we don't have words for how we react to things. Uh, and we do it since we're babies, right? If your baby and puts you in a very dark and scary and you know harsh environment, you're not going to be a very happy baby. Whereas if I put you in a nurturing, you know, soft light, um, you know, maternal um, environment, you're more likely to to develop uh, to to develop, you know, uh, normally. So uh, adults are the same, right? Um, some of us may uh, see ourselves as more uh, receptive to color or to proportions or to surface quality than others, but we all are, you know, even the people who say, oh, I'm not creative, you know, I don't care what I put on my body, you know, like they, they all, they all care. Um, because there's a, there's a huge amount of subconscious that's happening there. Um, uh, when it comes to, 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 to the neuroesthetics of, of what's going on around you, right? Even empty space is, is not necessarily a color, but it's something that the brain can perceive and can turn into well, well-being or the opposite. Um, and so color is one of these things that we can, as designers, we can control in the things that we design, right? Um, and color has meaning that is attached to it. And that meaning can vary based on different cultures or, or trends, right? They're, they're just like waves of color trends that are happening in fashion, that are happening in, in product design, that are happening whatever. You know, even, even types of materials like aluminum, you saw aluminum everywhere for a while. Um, and now you see a lot more like, um, you know, imperfect finished uh, materials, um, a little bit more granular things. And um, so as designers, we have to be aware of that, but we also have to be aware of how we make these trends last a little bit longer, because you have to remember by the, by the time our products launch, the product that we design launch, two or three years have passed, right? Because it takes that long to develop hardware, for example. So whatever we come up with has to be trendy enough that people um, um, really connect emotionally with it, but it has to be not trendy, not so trendy that you feel like it's obsolete by the time it comes out. So that's the fine line that we're working with as designers. And so, you know, when we, we do like a consumer electronics, you know, two or three years, five, if it's like an extremely complex or, or needs to be a medical products. When it comes to cars, you know, we kind of have to think about the 10, 15, 20 years in advance, especially for, for, for new concepts. For, you know, things that we do like living in space, you can think even more farther out, you know, how are we going to live on the surface of Mars in a hundred years, for example. So really thinking about how shapes and colors and surfaces and, and brands and things like that are going to interact with us so they actually serve us in the right way. Sometimes color is there for functional purposes, right? When you go somewhere and then you have something that's red and blinking, that means danger. That means look at me. That means this is immediate. You, you need to pay attention. Whereas if it's very calm and you know kind of gray bluish in the background with this like very soft light on it then this is more of a ambience type of uh, type of uh, uh, interaction that you have 
And uh, interaction designers are very good at that, right? They have, they usually have a lot of uh, information they need to put in front of you, whether it's on the screen, whether it's on AR, VR, XR, whatever. And they give a hierarchy to everything that you see. You need to see this first, you need to see this second, you need to see this third, and you need to have an impression of where you are without being completely conscious of it, right? And so industrial designers do the same thing. There's, when we design something, we give it a color. There's a first impression that we have to, to create. And then we get a little bit closer, look at the details, and that's the second impression. And then you start interacting with it, and that's the third impression. Oh, this is, this is a surprise. Versus, oh, this is expected, or this this feels very very nice. Uh, feels very good in my hand. Versus, oh, this this feels completely foreign and weird, right? And um, none of these things are good or bad. It all depends on what it's for. Um, but but color has the power of doing that. Um, and culturally, you have to be aware that color uh, can be positive or negative uh, in different cultures. It can be the same color. Um, but what's great is that now we can give color different dimensions, right? In the past, if you wanted a product out of a color, you just added colored beads of plastics in the mixture and you made enclosures out of that color. And then you didn't really have control over what light hit that color, if it was natural light, neon light, you know, uh, artificial light, whatever. Um, it kind of like was dependent on that. Whereas when you create entire environments, you control how light hits a product. You control the quality of shadows and highlights. You control the space it's in. You control how, how it feels in a room. Certain products feel like they're floating in a room, like they have no weight. Whereas other products look like very imposing and very, very uh, uh, central to, uh, to the room. Uh, what you were saying previously, I really liked how you were talking so much about psychology and the psychology behind color, because I think it's really interesting to see how you can almost like psychoanalyze the behaviors of different consumers and how they're going inter to interact with it. And I also really liked how you're talking about not just first impressions, but also different levels of impression. So the first impression they have when they see it, but also upon getting closer and then upon interacting with it and how their impression of the product changes throughout the lifetime of the product itself. And I think that optimizing the color and the design for those behaviors is a really, really interesting intersection. Um, and just playing on that idea of psychology in a sense, I know that design is very much so in the intersection of five fields of science, business, again, design, tech, and then art. Um, and I wanted to ask how storytelling is incorporated in that process, because I know you talked about this a little bit earlier, but I just want to touch on this a little bit more in terms of how storytelling is important in terms of marketing to consumers, but also making it a, just all around a well-used product. Storytelling is our common language, right? Um, if I have to talk to a business person, a scientist, a child, someone who lives in the desert, the only way we're going to understand each other or even begin to listen to each other is through storytelling. You know, I'm not gonna throw math at people. That's, that's the surest way for them to like run the other way. I'm not gonna throw, uh, you know, Venn diagrams that mean nothing to people. I'm not gonna throw, throw you know, an app uh, <laughs> at, at people, same thing. But storytelling um, has the wonderful ability to um, 
to show how you communicate. And from how you show how to communicate, you show a level of trust or that the person in front of you is willing to open themselves to listening to you. So that's, that's the first thing that storytelling does. The second thing that storytelling does that's very powerful is that it answers all the questions. It answers the what, the who, the where, the when, the how. Um, you know, a good story does all of those things. An incomplete story um, may not cover all of those things, but it can um, encourage the person you're talking to to ask questions. So then from there, you have an interaction. And the interaction is just another way of collaborating with other people. And, and I've never believed that we can do anything ourselves, right? We all have our talents. We all have things we're very good at. You know, we all have things we're very terrible at. But in order to really do great things in this world, you have to work with other people, understand other people, understand how they make decisions, and understand how your talent is, are going to align with their talents and then build something much bigger together. And so storytelling is, is what allows you to do that. And the, the more you use the storytelling tool, the more you can do it on the go. You know, you don't prepare a story before you meet someone because you've never met them. You don't know who they are. You need to capture who they are as you're telling the story by reading them, by reading how they ask questions, by reading how they react to things. Um, and so um, I really wish that more people in any field uh, learn storytelling um, uh, tools. And storytelling is not necessarily eloquence or the art of speaking. It, it can come in many other forms. You know, some people don't speak, so they can use drawing, they can use, um, you know, uh, different types of diagrams or whatever, but it's still storytelling. There's a beginning, there's a middle with, you know, resolution of sort and then there's an end. Um, and there's a lot of up and ups and downs in a story. You know, a boring story is just a linear story. It begins, something happens, and then it ends. Like, who wants a story like this? I want a story that is surprising, right? I want a story that um, has unexpected uh, characters being part of uh, part of it. I want a story that um, uh, has a a point that goes beyond the main character. Um, these are usually the best stories. And when I see people of all backgrounds, of all age, of all countries, cultures, share their story, um, whether it's personal, professional, human, inhuman, whatever it is, um, I find that interesting. Um, and it's also something that's very attainable, right? You don't have to have a PhD in anything to start telling stories. Um, you don't, you don't have to, you know, have 20 years experience in anything. You can start telling stories as a, as a child. Um, and we as societies have to allow people to tell their stories because the minute we stop telling our stories, we stop believing that humans who think different than us, differently than us exist. And that's where a lot of danger happen, right? When, when people only live with people who think like them, look like them, and, and act like them, um, that's when a lot of prejudice, a lot of narrow-mindedness, and a lot of uh, fear towards innovation happens. And that's about the most interesting uh, out there.
Something else that was just on my mind, um, I've thought about this for a while. You said design thinking is antiquated. And as someone who's not very familiar with design, um, can you break down um, what design thinking even really means and why it's antiquated to where the future of design uh, should be and is headed? Um, I, I don't think that the, the concept of um, uh, design thinking is, is antiquated. I think, I think working from empathy, which is like the whole purpose of it, is, is a great tool. What I don't like about design thinking or specifically people who call themselves specialists in design thinking is that all they do is think. Um, thinking, honestly, like anybody can do that. Just put yourself in the, in the right room with the right tools and you can think. What I'm interested in is application. How do you think, how do you think deeply about a project, about a, a problem, about, uh, about something that affects all of us and how do you make it happen? And thinking is just not enough, you know? You have to put it in action. You have to uh, align um, with a lot of people who can help you out along the way. You have to raise the right budget in order to come up with a solution that actually impacts people's lives. You have to have a plan for scaling. You have to do all of those things. And a lot of the people who I've met uh, so far uh, who who claim to be experts in 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 design thinking just just stop before all of that, um, and and they like to tap themselves on the back and say, oh, I I'm so full of empathy, this and that. I'm like, fine, but so what, right? It's <laughs> um, the empathy really comes when you've actually affected people's lives, and that can only happen when you practice design, when you solve complex problems, when you're in a room full of people who don't believe in anything that you do and start arguing with them with intelligence. Um, and, and, and yeah, design thinking is just not enough. Um, design thinking came out at a time where, when, when empathy in design was not, was not very prominent. And, and I think it came, came in at the right time. It needed that, design needed that. And now we're at a time in our history where being empathetic towards a situation, towards a user, towards um, an industry is just not enough. Now we need results. In relation to industry, I'd also be curious to hear where do you think the gap is for how design firms approach problems and projects in the education space? Because I know nonfiction has also um, done their own work for the future of education. Yeah, um, so education, there, there are two teams. The, uh, let's put lipstick on the pig team. Uh, and then there's the, the, the team that's, you know, really sees the end goal. Um, and, and they might be working on like small aspects of it. But, uh, but education wasn't one of the most complex uh, ecosystems you can think of, because it's not like shoving information down someone's throat. It's really thinking about how to create the foundation of a human so that a human can do whatever they want when they grow up, right? And, and that's in the, in the case where, where we think about education as a, as a childhood um, activity. Um, the way we think about it now, and, and we're not the only ones, is to really think, rethink education as a lifelong activity. Everything is education. 
being exposed to other humans is education. Uh, uh, have a critical, uh, having a critical um, uh, opinion about everything that comes to you is education. Um, you know, being creative about every aspect of life is education. And education is not going one way. It's not the world coming at you. It's, it's dialogue. Education is, is exchange of energy, is exchange of ideas, is exchange of um, how comfortable you are with the situation versus not. Um, and, um, and, and these are tools that are infinitely more useful than learning, you know, whatever they, they have you learn by heart in schools uh, these days. Um, you know, learning to think and learning to learn are about the two most important things um, out there. And, and I don't think our old system of grades or meritocracy or anything like this is very uh, productive. Um, what it's really doing is putting people in boxes uh, without honoring the fact that we all evolve throughout our lives. You know, some people blossom younger in their, in, in their life, right? They're quote unquote geniuses at 10 and then they become whatever they become after that. And then some people blossom a lot later because they finally get in contact with an environment that helps them blossom, right? Um, and, and, and I think we need to create opportunities in life where everybody has the opportunity of doing that. We all have something we're genius is that, you know, it can be something as simple as sewing something, for, uh, sewing a button like an expert all the way to, I don't know, nuclear physics or whatever it is. But there, I, I don't really believe in a hierarchy in any of that um, because, you know, I know brilliant PhDs who can't cook an omelet and, and you know, <laughs> it, it goes, it goes always, right? Um, so, so, so really uh, creating a sense of autonomy for each person. So no matter what happens in life, whether life prospers or you're in the middle of a war or, or climate change is like ruining your life, you know what to do. You know where to go. You know who to go to and you know how to ask for help and you know how to move on from a situation that's not very pleasant. Uh, that's what education should be for. Yes, I really, really like that. And I think that there was just such a good focus on holistic education and not education just being something we see confined to schools, but something we see as a part of society throughout development. And I think it's also like very important to not view education as very like binary things. I think we just tend to view education as you are educated, you have a college degree or you don't. And that defines sort of your work because we do live in this meritocracy. But I thought it was really nice how you touched on there is obviously intelligence in regards to certain subjects, but there's also social intelligence and emotional intelligence. And a lot of these things aren't trained properly. They're very experiential and we're not really promoting people to have these experiences and gain these forms of other implicit forms like in, of, of intelligence. And I, I thought that was really important to touch on. Um, and as we wrap up this episode, I want to ask, what was your biggest failure and how did you overcome it? Because I think that's something we don't ask each other enough, but it's also a very important part of all of our stories. Um, wow, okay. Um, failure. I don't really see my life as 
that. Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that makes sense. I've, I've, like anybody, I've done all dumb things, but I wouldn't call them failures. <laughs> um, they're, they're just things that I had to go through in order to figure out who I was. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I don't think so. I think I, think I am where I am today, uh, which is a happy place. Um, that, that's an acknowledgement I have to, I have to remind myself of the time. All of this was very hard to get to, but I'm so incredibly happy of where I am today. Um, you know, the people I work with, the things that we do, the friendships that I have, the personal relationships that, that I've, I've fostered. Um, uh, sure, it was not like a straight line. It was not all rosy and, and all easy, but I wouldn't call any part of it a failure. Um, I think I think I feel this way because I don't have any regrets in life, which which I believe is is an important place to be. Uh, if you have regrets in life, deal with them now, <laughs> uh, because it gets worse with time. And and be sure to to live a life where where regrets are just not a thing, right? And and also life happens. It's yeah, you'll have good days and you'll have bad days, and 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 then so 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 is it. But uh, but yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't attach any of my uh, life experiences to failure, because failure to me, the way I define that failure has a lot to do with what you're responsible for. You know, I can't be a failure in a situation where life happens or circumstances happen or you know, the economy just like fell on me in the most inopportune time. Uh, that's, that's just the cycle of life. Um, but I wouldn't say that I have said or done anything that I truly regret. Um, and, and I wouldn't qualify any of those things as, as failure. I actually really like that answer. Like that was a good answer because I think that gave a lot of insight into your thought process and the way that you sort of view life. Yeah, yeah, I resonate with that. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially like touching on regrets. I think um, like having regrets uh, is almost like limiting in a way. I feel like uh, you chain yourself with like emotional burdens. I think not having any regrets is a form of like emotional freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you'd be surprised by, by how easy it is to get over a lot of regrets. But, you know, I hear some people in my life or second or third degrees talking about regrets they're like oh I wish I had done this I'm like you have the mean I'll just do it now right it's like you have time you have you have the money to do it you have uh you have you have you're, you're in a good circumstance now do it uh but the thing is like uh, regret is very much linked to anxiety mm -hmm. um anxiety is is very much about oh um I I can't do this I don't want to do it now. Like I feel shame when I think that I haven't done it, but also I'm not motivated enough to change that shame. There's a lot of like that vicious circle happening in your mind. And it's very easy to just give up and say, oh, it's always been like this, why change, right? Um, so so yeah, no, um, I, I've, I've always done what I wanted to do. Um, and I, and I, wish, I wish that upon everyone, right? Um, 
it's not like all of these things were, were good ideas. Uh, <laughs> um, I think it's important to do really dumb things in your life. Um, because, because again, it's storytelling. If I came to you and say, hey, I'm a perfect person with a perfect life where everything I wanted happened without any, any obstacle, uh, that sounds really boring. That story is going to last five minutes. Whereas if I told you all the crazy stories that I went through, you know, when I went, traveled to this country and almost died because of something really dumb, you know, it's, it's, it makes, it makes people sound more interesting. <laughs> um, and I think everybody should, should have that rich of a life. Uh, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take that much resources to be interesting because the more interesting you are, the more you attract other stories that are interesting. And that's really what you want out of life. That is the school of life. Um, yeah. yeah, I really love that. Just the entire philosophy on life. Um, I think, taking risks is part of that also. I think if we didn't make mistakes, like you were saying, um, the story of our lives would be very dull, very mundane. I think the most interesting moments come when we least expect them or when we're in like an uncomfortable or like unfamiliar environment. So I really do resonate with that. Um, and I think with that, it's a perfect place to wrap up. And I just wanted to thank you again so much for being on our podcast and for this meaningful conversation. I know both me and Monesty definitely learned a lot from your experiences and your commentary. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. I learned so much. And yeah, I think it was just a fruitful conversation because we touched on so many different things. It didn't feel like a linear conversation. It felt like a very dynamic conversation. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. I think... Uh... You know, it's going to be great to have some dialogue on all of these subjects because I think they're important um, in enriching people's lives, right? It's not about the fact that I'm a designer or that I run a company. Like, that's that's not really important. I, I could be a janitor for all I care. But, um, but, yeah. but we all have the potential of being great people and to do great things in this life. So let's just start where we are and, and let's all play a role. <laughs>